video is live and here we go for number two welcome back to the innate strength podcast i am your host justin this is episode number two and i'm so glad you're returning or if you're new thanks for checking us out again my name is justin i'm a fitness coach and expert in biomechanics and human movement patterns and in this podcast we try to address common topics we hear about in the fitness industry today but what separates us from a lot of other podcasts is you, the listener, can send questions my way, and they'll hopefully be on each recurring episode of this podcast. If you ever have a question, you can go to innatestrengthtraining.com, go to the contact page, and just click the little button that says podcast question. You can reach out to me via Instagram at innate.strength, or you can, of course, find me through many other means, but those are probably the two easiest ones. And again, this podcast will always be ad-free. That means I want to try and make sure that I'm not going to sit here at the beginning or the middle of my podcast and have to tell you about how great something is. If I recommend a product, it's because I genuinely think it's a good product and I don't get an endorsement by doing so. That being said, I would love to keep doing this podcast. And to do so, I want to make sure that I make some kind of income from it or some kind of, yeah, we'll say income. So if you want to donate through Patreon or any other means, I'm happy to do that as well. Because if I don't get something from that, I'm at some point probably going to have to run an advertisement. And I don't want to do that again. So please do me the support of sending me something as a thank you for the podcast. And especially if you have questions, it's a great way to ensure your question will be answered. All right. Last week, we talked about good research versus bad research and how we tell the two apart. Because ultimately, if we don't understand that feature of our world in science, then we really can't have any other episodes moving forward because I don't understand if the research we're looking at is good or if the research we're looking at is bad. If you haven't heard that podcast yet, I recommend go listening to that one before you listen to this one because it'll give you some really great context on how to identify good research and how do we sift out the bad research when we read an article. So that when someone says, this is the best exercise for a squat or to improve your squat or whatever, you can note right away that there's probably something fishy going on there. Today, we're going to be talking about why form doesn't matter. I know that's a little bit of a cliffhanger last week on this question because ultimately, form does matter. But the way we're going to explain how our body works today, you'll be able to conclude, just like I would, that when I'm thinking about good movement mechanics, I'm not thinking about my form because it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme about how my body works and the biomechanical features of my body. But that's a big question. That's a big statement to make, and I want to make sure that we understand all the parts and pieces of it. So let's back everything up to how our body works. So why do we use form in the first place when we look at the human body? And for the most part, it's an easy cue for a coach. When I watch someone squat, when I watch someone run, do a lunge, whatever, form will let me know that they're doing it safe. And I put air quotes in there if you're not watching the video. I do a video of this podcast as well. So if you ever want to watch me on YouTube or other sources, you can do so as well. However, it's just me talking right now. So the video is probably not super interesting other than seeing my face make the mouth movements and the words coming out. Anyway, back to our topic on hand. When we look at form, we're looking at what we assume is right movement mechanics, which means assuming right biomechanical tissue activation. But if we look through the annals of history in terms of how we started creating movement patterns and exercises, form isn't really the thing that makes the most sense. If that were true, then there'd only be one way to squat. There would only be one way to lunge. And I don't think we can make the argument that there is only one way to squat. In fact, 
dynamic systems theory would state the exact opposite. If you haven't heard this theory before, uh, it's basically based on the idea that no matter what happens, however you move, whatever you're doing, it's always going to be variable every single time. From point A to point B will be the same, but the pathway to get there will variate every single time, which means every time you squat, every time you take a step, there's slight variation in the mechanics every single time. So even at a very fundamental level, form already doesn't quite matter because there's so much variability going on in the body, the, the way our body's activating tissue, the mechanoreceptors, all those things are being used in a way that will only be consistent each individual time. So no squat technically looks the same as another squat. But when we look at our form and we understand dynamic systems theory, the patterning we're using for our form is based on the idea that form, at least from what I can see, that form dictates proper tissue usage. And that is why we've created good form, what we consider, again, quote-unquote, good form. But let's back this up then. If we know dynamic systems theory states the variability of the body movement and mechanics, let's look even further at something even smaller. The cell. This is a great place to start, and we'll probably do this a lot throughout this podcast. If you're not big into biology, have no fear. I'm not going to go super in-depth in terms of how the cell functions. We're going to keep it really simple. There are three parts to a cell, three main basic fundamental parts, meaning there are many other things happening in a cell, but we can all typically agree from a scientific perspective that there is the outer wall, the cell membrane, the cytoplasm, that's the interior gooey stuff, and then the nucleus. In these three parts, there's other things going on. Not getting into that today. The cell membrane, the cell wall, think of it kind of like grape skin if you're looking at a grape. And the skin prevents things from leaving and things getting in. Now, the cell membrane does have a role of allowing certain things in and things out. But again, depends on the cell and what's going on. The cytoplasm is like the gooey part, the juicy part of the grape. And the seed of the grape is like the nucleus. The thing is that your nucleus is not a brain. It doesn't think. It responds but it doesn't think. So it's important to note that our brains, hmm, let me rephrase that, our cells don't have brains. And because of that, they don't think, they don't reason, they don't have emotions, they do nothing. They just respond to stimulus. And Dr. Andrea Spina has said it best when he said that cells, their language is movement. And then the way we talk to them is by exercising, by moving. I think I butchered that quote really bad. So if Spina's listening to this, I'm sorry. But the main point is getting across that the way we talk to ourselves is by moving them, by movement, by doing something that involves force and engagement. But let's look a bit further now at this. If we know that cells don't have a brain and they don't think, how can a cell know when a movement is good or not? It can't because it has no concept of good or bad. It just has force or so no force. So when I'm doing a squat, the question we should be looking at is when we do a squat with proper form, does that proper form dictate the proper force applied to the cell in a way that we use it in a way that is biomechanically sound? That's a very complicated way of saying when we do proper form, does it guarantee the right tissue is going to be activated in the movement? And the simple answer is no, it doesn't. If that were true, then coaching would be the easiest thing in the world because all we would have to do is put people in the right position and then as if by magic, the cells would just light up and do all their things the right way. It doesn't happen that way. 
And if you don't know how to move your body, you can have the nicest looking form in a squat, but if you don't use the right muscles, primarily your posterior chain, the lats and the core to activate to hold the weight above the shoulders if you're doing a back squat, and then all the other muscles of your tissue to support those muscles. If you don't do that, then technically speaking, you're just doing a movement that looks from a perspective of form, like a squat, but biomechanically speaking, the activation of tissue is not a squat. And in that context, form is completely, completely irrelevant to a movement. If I do a deadlift and it looks pretty, but most of the load goes into that person's lower back, then guess what? It's not a deadlift because a deadlift is a posterior chain movement and a hinge of the hips. On the outside, we'll have some things that look nice from a form perspective, but we can't put form above function. And this is, I think, the big thing that we need to start doing better as coaches and we need to start thinking better about when we train ourselves. Function of a joint and a movement is paramount to anything else. If I do not have proper function, I am not going to have proper form. And it does not work the other way. If I have proper form, it does not mean I therefore have proper function. This is why I'm comfortable saying form doesn't matter. Because grand scheme of things, yeah, there's a place for form and movement. And I'm not saying there's no place. But the way we currently train people and the way people typically think about an exercise is, I want to make sure I'm doing this right. How does it look? And then the coach will watch or your friend will watch and say, yeah, it looks like a squat. Yeah, it looks like a lunge. It looks like a push-up. I don't care what it looks like. Well, where do you feel it? Do you feel it in your, in your legs? Or do you feel it in your back? Oh, I feel it in my back. Well, then that's bad. It looks nice, but it's bad. If you're doing a push-up, well, I feel a lot of it in my back when I push. I'm not supposed to feel that there. See, in this then, we have to take back to a perspective of how we view the body and the structure of the body. And for a while, the, the skeletal structure and the form of the body was kind of viewed as this like the skeleton, the bones held everything together. Whereas now we would have a better argument to make that there is this thing called biointensegrity, meaning that the body is held together by tension and everything's kind of floating in space and being held together in space. It's based off the idea of tensegrity, which was developed in architecture. Now, recent studies in science has shown that biotensegrity doesn't necessarily fit everything we have because it involves structure and solid things being held in space. Our body also has lots of fluid and other things going on. Think about the cell again. The cell does not have any solid structure in it, but it responds to force and will respond accordingly. That doesn't necessarily fit the biotensegrity models perfectly. So some people are arguing for a fascia integrity model, which is more about the fascial system and the integrity of the system. And there's another one out there as well I haven't researched as much into yet. But I think it's safe to say that when we look at the body, we have to understand that everything is connected and everything is responsible for everything, which sounds like a very confusing way of saying, so basically all my body is in charge of all my body. Yep, moving on. Let's look at a movement like a bicep curl because most people probably think a bicep curl involves the bicep of my arm. So why worry about it? Okay, so let's look at this from a different perspective. If I did not have a torso, but I had an arm, could I do a bicep curl? Probably not. Well, if I had my whole body, but I didn't have a good deltoid, could I do a bicep curl? Yeah, it would be harder and less efficient. Now, let's look at it from the perspective of weight. If I had a very light weight, bicep curl is pretty easy. What if I did a really heavy weight? Is there any way I can lift up that heavy weight without having some level of activation through the rest of my body? 
Yeah, most of you if, you, if you've done a bicep curl would know, no, if I think about it, my body is engaged to keep me balanced, to keep me stable. My core is engaged to keep me straight. All these things are happening so that I can support the bicep curl I'm trying to perform. See, that's the thing about thinking about their body from a tensegrity standpoint, that everything connects to everything else and is influenced by everything else. Because now I can change what happens in a bicep curl by doing it standing. Having a hard time doing it standing, try it seated. If I can't do it seated, try it kneeling. If we change those parameters, we change the way we're interacting with the tensegrity space and changing the outcome of the movement and maybe making it easier or harder, however you want to see and perceive that. That makes sense with a bicep curl. And it makes a lot of sense when you do a squat. If you talk to any powerlifter or people who lift really heavy weights, I can't imagine they tell you that when they're trying to lift 500 pounds, that they're thinking about what they're going to eat for dinner, that they're thinking about some cute person in the gym they're looking at, that they're thinking about their dog, that they're thinking about their politics. That moment, they're focused on lifting that weight because one, if they get distracted in the tiniest bit, they can massively mess themselves up. So there's some risk involved. But number two, the tensegrity of the body requires a higher level of activation to maintain proper body position to be able to do the squat. Now, position and form to me are two different things. If you're thinking about, well, position is the form, right? Position just means being able to maintain a healthy space to move into what we'd call a squat. So thinking about this is like that, that spectrum of neutral. Some people talk about neutral spine. It's not a space that means that your spine has a position that is neutral. It's a spectrum where the spine performs best in a neutral way, meaning the spine isn't going to be utilized beyond what it should be. That's what I mean when I talk about position. When you go into a squat that's really heavy, a good position will allow you to get deeper and maintain better activation of tissue through the movement. Now, if someone's doing a really heavy squat, but they always let their knees drop in every single time, down in the movement and up in the movement, that's not good, most likely. And from the perspective of form, if I can get them to keep their knees over their toes while they squat, I'm going to see a marked improvement in their performance because we can now activate the tissue better. But again, function came first. Can I feel it where I need to feel it? Okay, now let's adjust the form to enhance the feel. So where are we at now? Form doesn't matter. Hopefully, you're in a position to say, okay, I kind of see what this guy's saying. Form isn't super important. Maybe the biotensegrity stuff is pretty new for you. We'll delve a little bit more into that here in a second. But I want to make sure that we understand that fundamental thing. Function, function, function. If I cannot engage my glutes in a squat or a deadlift, then I can't squat or deadlift. I can't. I can do the pattern of what we consider a squat and deadlift, but I can't use the function of my muscles in a squat and deadlift. And if I can't use the function, then the form is just irrelevant. It's irrelevant. And see, this is even more important when we think about how people have different body structures. Some people are tall, some people are short, some people are squat, some people have thicker bones, thinner bones. There's lots of other things going on in our bodies that if I just go from a perspective of form, it assumes that every human body hits the exact same movement pattern every single time, which would have to imply that everybody is the exact same person, which is just ludicrous when you think about it. It's ludicrous to think that we can create the steps you need for a squat, and it applies to everybody, at least from the perspective of an exterior form, how it should look. 
Whereas how it should look, the form, definitely from my perspective is a gauge. There's definitely a wrong way to squat from a form perspective. But at the end of the day, if the person can activate the right tissue, the positioning of the body loses its relevancy over time. And that's ultimately a good thing. Because if you know how to squat really well with a barbell, that doesn't mean you know how to squat really well with a box, with a child, with a rock, with your car. I mean, whatever you want to put in there. The barbell squat is good for barbell squats. The translation to other things is not necessarily carry over by magic. But if I have a body that understands activation of tissue and I know how to recruit the right tissue for a squat, well, now it doesn't matter if my feet are staggered, I'm on an uneven surface, the weight is weighted more towards the left than the right, you know how to utilize the tissue to move the weight the way you want to and ultimately makes you a safer lifter and safer in general out in the world. So let's go back to the biotensegrity model or what I would say right now is this biotensegrity fashion integrity system, this idea of thought that everything is connected. If you are wearing a t-shirt and you were to pull on the left side down by your hip and squeeze it and pull it out and away, what happens to the shirt? Well, it pulls towards the direction you're pulling, right? That's not a complicated question. But what about the rest of the shirt? Can you see the effects of the pulling of the shirt on the rest of the shirt? Yes. I think we can all argue that you can. There's going to be spots that you're going to see more, and it's going to be more localized to where the pull is happening. But even all the way up the chain of the shirt, you're going to see the opposite shoulder is going to have pull in the direction of the force you're creating. And if we look at our body from this idea that everything is connected, then that means when I'm doing a bicep curl, the localized space is going to do the most work. That's why we call it a bicep curl, because the bicep is primarily doing the work of the bicep curl. But my shoulder needs to be engaged so that it can support the bicep to do the curl. My lats may even need to be engaged so that I can support my body and be in a good position to properly do a bicep curl. My abs, my obliques will be engaged because I don't want to lean over to that one side and fall off or fall over. The legs are also going to be stabilized. I might even engage my glutes. In fact, I would say the next time you go and do the bicep curl, which I hope isn't too often because there's many more efficient ways to exercise our bodies than just a singular curl. But if for the sake of this example, you want to test some things out, do a single arm bicep curl and squeeze your glutes, push your feet into the floor and make your body rigid through the contraction of all your muscle tissue and then produce the bicep curl. I guarantee you, you will feel more stable while you do the curl within reason. If you make your body as stiff as a board, you may find it harder to do the curl. But if you contract to a space where you'll find a nice balance between doing nothing and doing something, you'll find a market easier curl. And you may even find that you can curl more weight more efficiently. The same thing is true if I do an overhead press and I'm pressing up overhead with just my left arm. If I'm getting tired and I'm having a hard time pressing, try squeezing the glutes as you press. You may find that you're able to press one more rep out efficiently. Now, this doesn't mean that if I squeeze all my muscle tissue that I'm just magically going to be stronger than ever. It just means you have better support to do the thing you want to do. And that's the takeaway for the average person when we think about the body as an integrity space, that everything is connected and influences everything else. 
that it supports. That's why everything's connected. Everything does all these things. If you're still having a hard time with this, let's look then at how we know what the bicep muscle looks like. To see the bicep muscle, you would want to have to cut open the skin, the epidermis and the dermis, and then pull away the fascial lining, the connective tissue, the veins, all these things. And then eventually you'll get to this pocket of tissue that we would call the bicep muscle which will still be connected to the ligaments and tendons, connected to the elbow and the forearm and the upper arm. But they're not connected as in like they're layered on top of each other. Like our body's not a cake. There's not a layer of sponge, a layer of ganache, a layer of frosting, and a layer of whatever you're putting on top. And they're stuck together because they're sticky substances. They're interwoven into each other. In fact, the tissue, if you watch it, it's like it diffuses into the next space. So really, if we cut away all the tissue around our bicep to observe the bicep, we're already looking at the bicep from an improper lens because we've removed parts of our body structure that it would influence that tissue. Again, back to a t-shirt, think like a spider web. If you poke one side of a spider web, does not the rest of the spider web get influenced by what you touch? Your body acts the same way. Our connective tissue is not connected like tape. It's connected by literally being interconnected. So think more like a root system of a tree. Your tree's not sitting on top of the ground and the ground is just underneath it. And you can move the tree whenever you need to. No, the tree has grown into the ground and become a part of the ground surface through its interconnected system and it supports the ground and helps with erosion, those kinds of things. Not a perfect analogy, but a better idea of understanding that when we look at our body tissue, everything is connected. Everything is connected. And ultimately what differentiates between a ligament, a tendon, a muscle, a bone, is the amount of atoms, ground substance, and all the things that make up the tissue. So a bone, higher calcium. Muscle tissue will have less calcium because it needs to be more pliable. But ultimately when we break things down to the microbiological level, it's a simple recipe for what makes what. This is why when someone tears an ACL, and if they were to put a cadaver tendon, which is not a ligament, in the space of the ACL, over time, after that person's gone through rehab, if they were to look back at that space, they would see a tissue that represents a ligament, not a tendon. Why? Because it's being used the way a ligament would be used. And that's fascinating. That's really fascinating that our body will adapt the space we're using to the function of what it's being used for. So hopefully, this is getting the wheels turning of movements you've been doing for a long time, or maybe you're starting to wonder, I don't know, Mao, I just kind of do my squat, and I don't really think too hard about it. Or when we do a crunch, maybe you're not really doing a crunch the right way. I don't know. I think we can make a pretty strong case to say form doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Because if I do a squat properly, I'm going to have triple extension and triple flexion. If you don't know what that means, it just means that when you do a squat, you're going to have some flexion at the ankle, some flexion at the knee, and some at the hip. So triple flexion, triple extension to move. That's what a squat is. When I do a deadlift, I don't really have triple extension and triple flexion. It's more about hip hinge. It's more about the hip flexion extension. There'll be some bend in the knees and some stuff happening in the ankles, but they're not really sharing the load the same way because a deadlift is a different movement than the squat, even though they use similar muscle tissue. And then the same is true for the crunch or the sit-up. If I'm doing the motion, but I'm really not getting a lot in my abdominal muscles, then I'm not really getting a lot out of my sit-up or my crunch. 
if I start feeling a tired neck in those positions, that can be for two reasons from my perspective. Either one, your neck is very weak, and so holding your head at an angle is a lot of work for your neck. Or two, your neck is trying to do the job of your abdomen and trying to help push you up in the movement. That's not what's supposed to happen. And so this is a nice differentiation between a muscle group assisting the main mover, the prime mover from work for working, and a assisting muscle group that is trying to take over the role of the prime muscle. This is what happens when someone starts trying to train and the prime mover is no longer doing the prime movements. So if we take the deadlift, for example, or maybe even the squat, let's go with the squat. Because in a squat, I'm moving a weight up and down. And in a deadlift, although the weight is moving up and down, technically speaking, the force is backwards and forwards. A kettlebell swing is using the same mechanics as a deadlift, but it's moving the weight in a more forward, backward position. Deadlifting is great for trying to jump, trying to get faster. That's what our glutes do and our posterior chain does. If we don't have those muscles, we have a hard time walking and running. So let's go to the squat because our squat will also use our quadriceps because we're pushing weight up. If you walk upstairs, you felt your quads before. The muscles above the knee and below the hip make up our quad muscles. What happens though when those quads try and do all the work in a squat? They'll get bigger, but the question is, is that their role? And the answer is no. Our posterior chain probably comprises of some of the biggest, thickest muscle groups in our body. Stands to reason that they are a pretty big prime mover for lots of lower body extensor movement. And by extensor movement, I just mean like our legs. Our movement is another kind of extensor movement. It's all emanating from our core and our torso, but they're articulating at our extensors or the extensions, arms and legs. Anyway, so the squat, using extensions, the legs, is going to push up. But if I don't squeeze my glutes as I push myself up, if I don't engage through my hamstrings, it's just not a squat. It's mechanically, form looks like a squat, but if the majority of the work is going into my quads and to my back, I mean, then it's just, it's just not a squat. It's not even good for you, right? So when someone's doing a squat and they talk about lower back pain, we can already start to identify why do they have the back pain, okay? It's either because they cannot use the muscles that they want to in the way they should, or the muscle does not have enough mobility to do its job well. So it's either a contraction issue, I'm not contracting the tissue enough and maybe I need to strengthen it, or it cannot contract enough to support the amount of force it's trying to load because it has not enough space. And that's the way we need to look at mobility. Mobility is this idea that our body can move into a space under control, under active usage of the space. Whereas flexibility is passive usage of the space. And we'll probably use another podcast to talk more about flexibility and mobility and why those should be separate things. But for now, let's just say that mobility is actively moving a joint. Flexibility is passively moving a joint. So if I can't actively move my joint, my hips, let's say my right hip socket lacks some mobility, then that means when I go into a squat under load, I now have to try and do this squat under load and not use the wrong tissue. But if I can't move that tissue from a mobility perspective actively, on its own without load, then it's not going to change with load. And it's not going to change because I foam roll either. Foam rolling can do some good things. I think there's a place for it, but the place for foam rolling is not to make me better at squatting. Because ultimately, if I can't get into a deeper squat without the foam roller, then I should start questioning why my body doesn't let me go lower in a deep squat. Because if you were unconscious, you could go into the deepest squat in the world. 
So the issue shouldn't be the foam roller. The issue should be the functionality of the tissue. And like I said, we'll save mobility for a different day. But if we're addressing the squat and the movement patterns, if I don't have enough space to move well, I don't have enough space to activate the tissue well, which means I'm going to have to use other tissue to accomplish the role and the task that I'm trying to move and go into. This is what we call the path of least resistance, which is a good thing in a lot of ways if the best path that we're supposed to be using is the path of least resistance. But when it's not because I stopped moving, I sit too much, I don't do enough movement patterns, I don't do enough exercising, living my life the way my body was designed for, then I'm not going to have the best path of least resistance and it's going to go the wrong way. Even if it just goes off by a degree, for now, over time that degree is going to become 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 degrees of going the wrong direction. And now we've got serious problems to try and fix in a movement pattern because now there's neurological mapping. I'm used to moving this way. There's a lack of mobility, so I physically can't move the right way. And then lastly, I have no capacity to activate the right tissue to even do it the right way. And there's probably a lot of you listening today who are in that boat. You squat, you do any kind of exercise, you feel it in your back, you feel it in your knees, you feel it in your ankles, and you don't know what's wrong. So you try foam rolling, things feel a little better, but it still doesn't fix anything. That's because you're trying to address the problem from the perspective of form. If I have better form, I will squat better. If I have better function, I will squat better. That's the place you need to be in when addressing your issues and your compensation patterns. Function, function, function. Let's keep riding on this squat. So let's say you want to start looking at yourself and see how well do I squat. We'll start with your glutes. How well do you have the ability to contract each side of your legs or each glute essentially? So squeeze your right glute and just take note. How hard can I squeeze it? Can I squeeze it into a rock? Does it squeeze it all? Or are you sitting there going like, dude, I don't even know what my glute is. That's all good information. Then you squeeze your other glute, your left one. Is it the exact same? Is it less intense, more intense? Because if you find that there's a discrepancy between the two, or if you're like me, there was a point in time where I noticed that my left glute was probably able to squeeze like 30% to the amount of my right glute. That means in any given bilateral movement, so a normal squat, deadlift, anything like that, jumping, my right side's probably going to end up always doing 70% of the work, my left 30 Do you think over time that's going to create other problems in my body? Yeah, of course, because they're not even. And by even, I don't mean they have to be literally the same amount of force. They need to be really close. Because if they're not really close, I'm going to have greater compensation over time. So then that means you need to work on strengthening the side that's not as strong. So in my case, I started doing single leg glute exercises, specifically targeting my left glute and specifically focusing as hard as I could on making my left glute squeeze as hard as I could which meant that the physical exercise was hard, but mentally I had to think a lot more about it because I'm trying to make the muscle work in a way it hadn't been working in for a while. Imagine if you put on an oven mitt on your hand so you could only move your hand as basically one, your fingers as one unit for a year. Then you take the mitt off and then you're gonna try and wiggle fingers individually. Do you think you'd be able to do it easily? No, and actually at the beginning you probably wouldn't be able to move them separately at all. There'd be no capacity for it. And it's not because you no longer can ever move them that way. Path least resistance, body being efficient, not moving that way. So you just efficiently find other ways to use the energy and other things. But over time, to get those fingers to wiggle individually again is a lot of concerted effort, mentally and physically. At which point, it'll become easy again. 
So if I have a discrepancy and an imbalance in my systems on my sides and my body, I want to make sure that they're closer together and that ultimately the intent of the movement is going to be what drives the movement. And this is what I think we need to focus on as a culture and as fitness experts. If you're listening and you're a coach, physiotherapist or chiropractor, whatever, is the intent of the movement needs to be at the forefront so that when I am doing a squat, let's say we'll use the back squat as an example, I'm loading the weight on the back of my shoulders. So that means my lats, so the muscles on the back side of my body are going to need to be engaged to support the weight on my back. My abdomen, my transverse abdominis, the muscles on the front of my body are also going to be engaged. People would use the term bracing. I don't like that term because I think it misses the point. But the muscles need to be contracted so that as I go down into the squat, my body can maintain a good position to support the legs in the movement. And now the legs can do their job where I drop down into my squat, making sure that I can let the leg muscles lengthen while the weight is carried down, and then they have the ability to contract to push the weight back up. During this entire movement, especially with heavy weight, my entire body is engaged. If we don't think that way, we're just telling people how movement should look and make it look pretty for what? Like scoring the movement perspective, how it looks? Look, I'm all about aesthetics. I think that's an important thing to focus on, but aesthetics don't outweigh the function. A pretty looking car with a crappy engine is still a crappy car. It just looks really nice, right? If you make a brownie and it's filled primarily with dog crap and then some flour, it can look like a normal brownie, but it's not going to taste the same as a brownie, right? So aesthetic does not replace the function in pretty much anything I can think of. If you can think of something else that this maybe doesn't apply, you know, let me know. But for the most part, pretty looking book, no words on the inside, doesn't really make any sense. Pretty looking house, nothing on the inside, no toilets, anything else, it doesn't have any function. It just looks nice. It needs to have a function. There is a function to the movement patterns and the way our body works. So I have to focus on the intent of the movement. And that means when I squat, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about squeezing my muscles and moving through the space. And the way I like to look at this, and this will be the last thing we'll talk about for today, is internal rotation is power, external rotation is expression of movement. What I mean by this is, let's use a deadlift for example. As you move down into a deadlift, you push your hips back, pressure moves towards your heels, not completely on them, but towards them. Your hips are going to very, very slightly internally rotate. And why? Because as the glute muscles lengthen or stretch, think of like when you hold a weight in a bicep curl, as the arm goes down, the bicep is stretching to move the weight back up, you can track the bicep and pull it back in. So as I'm moving down into a deadlift, my hips are internally rotating because the glute muscles are lengthening. Now it's not 30 degrees of internal rotation, but there's rotation happening in my hip. That's so I can get down into the position where I can then contract from and pull back out of. When I pull and contract the muscles, my legs are going to slightly externally rotate because the glute muscles are gonna pull towards the inside of the body and towards your butt crack, let's just you know call it what it is. They're gonna pull towards each other. They're not pulling out towards the hip, they're pulling back in. That externally rotates the hip, which means a deadlift requires some level of internal and external rotation of your hip. And if you understand what a hip joint is, it's a ball and socket joint, its primary function is rotation. So if your hip doesn't rotate well or at all, then technically speaking, you have no more a hip joint. You have a space that represents a hip does not act like one, can kind of do hip things, but doesn't do them very well.
But you see, if I understand that I'm starting in an internally rotated position in a lot of movements, and then I use external rotation to create the movement, and that's what our joints do. External rotation, if I contract my scapula, it's going to pull my shoulders back and out. If I externally rotate my shoulders, it's going to pull my arms out. Internally rotate brings them in. Internal rotation is where we start even in the fetal position. Everything's brought in because it's a safe space. And it's a space that I can then move from and express. External rotation is expression of movement in that sense because it involves contraction leads to expression. So if I want to stand up, there's microscopic external rotation through my hips and my legs. If I'm doing a push-up, there's some level of internal external rotation happening in the movement patterns. Now, I don't have any studies to represent this one right now. This is my theory on what we're seeing. And at some point, I would like to do a case study and see the difference between focusing on internal external rotation as part of our movement pattern. Because ultimately, if I'm doing a, a deadlift and I start to think, well, I'm going down internally. So as I'm holding the bars, I can let my body internally rotate. And then as I pull it up, my legs, I can focus more on external rotation to maximize glutes, but then also trying to bend the bar into myself externally rotating my arms will increase my lat activation, which will help me and support me in the actual lifting of the barbell. That's a pretty powerful thing to think about. So as you go into your movements this week, and as you go into exercising and running, whatever it is you're going to do, take some time to think about how you're moving and actually just be aware of when I'm lifting and doing something, do I feel the right stuff? Or maybe you'll notice that you don't know what you're supposed to use in a movement. So then make sure you understand it doesn't mean you need to be a master of anatomy and biology because ultimately if someone needs to use their shoulder muscles more, their rear delt or their external oblique, that's obviously not your shoulder, but giving you a different muscle. Whatever the muscle group is, you don't need to know the name. You just need to know the location. So your shoulder muscles are located where? In your shoulder. So if I'm using my shoulders in an exercise and I don't feel a lot of work in my shoulders, but they're what's supposed to be doing the work, then I need to probably drop the weight and master lower weight with contraction. Because ultimately, I can make any weight feel really heavy with the intent I have in the movement. An exercise I'll do with people is what I would call a one rep max air squat, in where we create the illusion of external force by contraction of our tissue. It's a really cool exercise. It really sucks to do because it's hard. But when you're done, you've done your equivalent of a one rep max without any external load. It's safer because you can't, you can't contract your tissue beyond what you can contract. Injury at this point is load being greater than the capacity of the joints. So if I can't create more load that doesn't exist, I'm always going to be at my max capacity. But it also is going to teach me what I should be feeling when I do a movement. And ultimately, it's the intent. The intent can change so much in an exercise whereas the form doesn't really have that capability. It can tweak and, and fine-tune for sure. And again, that's not to say there isn't some value in understanding good form in a movement, but if I don't understand the intent and the function first, then it doesn't really matter what it looks like. So if you want to bother people who haven't heard this podcast, tell everyone that you meet. You know, form doesn't matter when you do a squat, and then as long as you understand the reasoning behind it, you can easily defend the position. Function over form. Function over form. Put it on a shirt. Put it as your motto for the day. Whatever you need to do, function over form. 
And I hope I've given you some good things to think about. I hope this has been another enjoyable podcast for you. As always, I'm interested in your questions. At some point, I don't want to have to just talk about things that I want to talk about. I can do that too. But I also want to get questions from you, the listener. So if there are things in health and fitness that you have a question on that are making you think and wonder, submit them. I'd rather make this an opportunity to talk to you and what you want to hear. And ultimately, as I have guests on this show, we'll announce those before they come on so that you can ask them questions as well. There's a lot of cool podcasts out there with a lot of cool guest speakers who have written books, experts in their field, but they just kind of get to talk about what they've written, which is great. But I always have a lot of questions, things I want to hear a little bit more about. And I just thought a really cool way to address that would be to create a podcast where we can talk with these really cool, smart people. And the audience, you guys, can ask them anything within reason that we can talk about on the podcast so that it's like you're there with us answering and listening their Let me say that again. Hearing them answer your questions. There we go. I promise I use words well most of the time. And again, if you like this podcast, you can support me on Patreon. Innate Strength is where I'm at. Until next time, have a good day.